Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. You know, one of the absolute horrors of COVID was watching people voluntarily give up their rights. Uh, the, the people who were willing to, as I've discussed before, sit at home and wear their government-appointed gray garb and await further dist- uh, instructions. They were willing to be told, you cannot leave your house, you cannot go to work, you cannot go to church, and they said, okay, government, thank you for telling us, let us know when it's safe, we'll be right here waiting. It was frightening. It was the, this, this descent into madness or, or uh, authoritarianism, however you want to describe it, was one of the more frightening things I had ever actually witnessed. Frightening, for sure. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com. TonyKatz.Locals.com. Well, this continues, especially when it comes to education and this most radical notion that parents don't know how to educate children, only the schools do. After all, people got a four-year degree. They must know everything must know everything are, are you sure about that are you sure they know everything it starts with a, a tweet from the nea national education association the the union that of course must be broken into and it reads educators love their students and know better than anyone what they need to learn and to thrive what? How is it possible? How could anybody think it possible that this be the case, that this be the facts? Of course this is not factual. What they need to learn and to thrive? You think teachers know best what a child needs to thrive? I'm not anti-teacher, but certainly the NEA is not doing teachers any favors with nonsense tweets like this. Parents know best. Parents know best. It is a radical thought to think that because somebody has a college degree, they know better than a parent who doesn't have a college degree. It is a radical thought to think that an institution knows better than the institution of the family and the creation of the parent. It is Radical, and I have people. Well, the the who, parents don't have a a four year degree. Four year degrees are what matters most. Let me go over something uh, with 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 you here. If I were to ask the progressives what they think about Ron DeSantis, uh, along with telling me he's worse than Hitler, so freaking boring. These people are just so absolutely freaking boring with their Hitler this and Hitler that and Hitler the other. And now it's springtime for Hitler and Germany. And they don't even have the decency to use a musical. But they'll all tell you, oh, DeSantis is dumb. DeSantis is so stupid. Ron DeSantis went to Yale. Just so we all understand each other. And then he went to Harvard where he got his law degree. Yale and Harvard. 
is Ron DeSantis. And you will have leftists telling me that this graduate of the two most prestigious universities in America is a fool. They'll tell you the same thing about, uh, for example, Newt Gingrich. They'll tell you that Newt Gingrich is just plain stupid. A Bachelor of Arts degree in history from Emory, and he went on to Tulane where he got his master's and his PhD in European history. He was also a teacher of history in Georgia, in the university system there. But they'll tell you he's stupid. So you don't mean that the college degree says something, means something, is important. You mean having the right ideology means something. And the people with the right ideology are now the college graduates because the Democratic Party has given up on the working class, which is strange because a lot of those working class people still voted for Democrats in this past election. You don't consider the degree to be the thing that matters. It's a lie. It's a fluff piece. It's nonsense. You believe that children should be controlled by unions, by government entities. That's creepy as hell. If you want something that is a danger well there you go educators love their students and know better than anyone what they need to learn and to thrive so i just simply wrote you don't know better than parents freaks because they're freaks one of the good things of this election it cannot be understated the school board races won by the political right won by parents not even the political right Parents who said, you don't get to call us domestic terrorists for wanting what's best for our kids. We're willing to fight. And they did, and they were successful in so many places. So many places. I love it. No, a lot of this election didn't go the way we wanted. I'll get into that in a little bit. You can't deny it. You can only learn from it. I, I, I've learned uh, much about where I was right, where I was wrong, where I misunderstood data, where I need to rethink what what uh, uh, is important, which is, of course, strategy over rhetoric. But they're not stopping. They think this kind of talk is the answer. They need to be fought even louder and even harder. Don't ever apologize for doing so. You are in charge of your kids, not some nonsense union. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. I've got more coming up. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. Matt Ryan goes 21 for 28 for 222 yards. I'm sorry, did I say Matt Ryan? Yes. Your starting quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts. Wait, what happened to Sam Ellinger? Shh, we don't talk about Sam Ellinger. The first rule of Colts football is we don't talk about Sam Ellinger. Tony Katz, good to be with you. Jonathan Taylor, 22 carries, 147 yards. Yeah, I know, and included that 66-yarder. I know it did, but he did it, and it was impressive. The Colts, 25. The Raiders, 20. Jeff Saturday with the win, or, man, it was it was the Raiders. Which, by the way, if you didn't see the Derek Carr press conference afterward, the quarterback for the Raiders, that dude is just plain old devastated. JMV joins us right now, 93.5, 107.5, the fan. And uh, 
Jeff Saturday will continue to take heat. This idea of hiring Jeff Saturday has a lot of people uh, apoplectic. But Colts fans are going to say, if if you win, we'll, we'll love you. The man's not the second coming. I've seen some people writing about, it's the greatest thing that ever happened. Whoa up. What's your take on this victory yesterday? Well, Tony, Colts fans wanted to see him have success because of his past. And they also want to see this team have success. And you know, the owner wants to see this team have success. A lot of us would, I guess, in this case, suggest that they're done, that they should be playing for a high draft pick and that draft pick should be a quarterback. But the owner and a lot of the fans still want them to play through it. A lot of season remaining. I understand that completely. And it was good to see some good fortune happen to the Colts yesterday, even if it didn't come in the fashion in which was agreed upon by most folks and especially those folks that Tony just so went overboard and overreacted with the egregious, most egregious thing I've seen in my years of the NFL. How angry are you at Joe Thomas, the former Cleveland Brown? It's that's a clown show, man. Seriously, that's the most egregious thing you have seen. That's that's just what that is, Tony. Those morning television shows where they try to scream and yell and outdo one another, and then you end up saying something and you sound really stupid. That's it on Friday with Joe Thomas. And then Bill Cowher yesterday, Bill Cowher on CBS, if you missed that, uh, was explaining just how awful he thought this hire was uh, and how big of a disgrace it was to all the coaches out there that had worked. Um, you know, and then you can flip the script. You can say, well, there are a lot of broadcasters out there that probably spent 25, 30 years, never got out of a small market, but you land as a former coach, right, in a, a nice, cushy CBS gig. People are saying that. It's just overblown. Listen, if you want to blame Jim Mercer, Tony, if you want to blame him for a misguided decision, um, a decision that was made in haste, or intervening or meddling, you can do that. And I'm glad that they got to win because all of that heat, at least for this week, is somewhat off. But this other stuff about an egregious hire and a disgraceful hire is nothing but national media overblown fodder. It was ridiculous. Talk to me about the game itself. What did you see? What did you like? What can this team actually build on? And uh, Matt Ryan's the quarterback for the future now? Yeah, well, I guess so, because Jeff Saturday wanted it that way. Jim Ursay wanted Sam Ellinger, and that's what I would like to know, too, because Jim Ursay, I would guess, right, he kind of forced Sam Ellinger on Frank Reich, and then Frank Reich gets fired, and then Jeff Saturday is allowed to go back when he was healthy to Matt Ryan. And you and I talked about this last week. Matt Ryan was going to be the best way for this team to get a win. It wasn't Sam Ellinger. It was Matt Ryan. I think I even said last week Nick Foles. Both of those veteran quarterbacks, I thought, gave the Colts a better chance to win than did Sam Ellinger. And Jeff Saturday with a healthy Matt Ryan had a chance to make that call. I was told Saturday that on Friday that there were number one team snaps for Matt Ryan, and I should watch at some point. He's probably going to enter the game. And then yesterday I hear that he's probably going to – to start the game. So that did not surprise me. But I tell you what we need to talk about is how Parks Frazier, in his first game, his debut of play caller, I thought he kept it really simple. And what he did was he got it to his guys. He got it to Jonathan Taylor. He got it to Michael Pittman Jr. He got his playmakers the football. And they also stayed ahead of the chains. I'd have to look back on the percentages. But this season offensively didn't seem like that there were a lot of second or third in short situations seemed like we saw a lot of that yesterday and they weren't against the chains no third and long situations or at least not many to speak of I thought Parks Frazier did an outstanding job in his debut as play caller now again it was against a bad defense 
But he was thrown in there. That was great. The quarterback's coach apparently didn't want the gig. Um, after it was presented to him, Parks Frazier stood up, and there you go. Had a nice calling game. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The quarterback's coach didn't want the gig? Did you want to hear this story? I want to hear the whole thing. I got nothing else to do. This is it. <laughs> go. So the story, as the story goes, Scott Milanovic is the quarterback's coach, and he was the first guy that was actually offered the play-calling gig. And as the story goes, and I don't know if anybody with the Colts would dispute it, but as I was told, it was a situation where he wanted them to tear up his contract and he wanted to get more pay for doing that gig. And the Colts decided against that. Thus, Parks Frazier was the choice on Sunday. That's – oh, just as a uh... – Man, you had to really think that you were in a leveraged (laughs) position to be able to do that with the Colts. Yeah, and you know what? I don't know the entire story, and maybe you're right in how you portray this. It may also be a situation to where, you know, some of the coaching staff, from what you hear, not everybody was on board organizationally with what they were doing with Jeff Saturday in this situation. You know, so maybe it was something like that. I don't know, but I was just told that story uh, late Saturday, early Sunday about how he was going to be the first choice and it wasn't going to be Parks Frazier. But I'm glad for Parks Frazier. I don't know him from anybody, but I thought he did a really nice job of just keeping it simple and getting it to his guys, staying ahead of the chains. And they had some big plays for him against the bad Raiders defense, but they got the win. I thought that he did a really good job of play calling yesterday for a first-timer. Talking to JMV from 93.5-1075, the fan. Uh, let's talk about hashtag run the damn ball because that was the thing that looked different. I mean, there are some things on offense that I have questions about specifically. Uh, uh, only four uh, passes to a tight end. Where's our, our tight end play at, at this stage of the game? But they actually did run the ball. I mean, when you take a look at it, I'll take the Ryan carries out of it, they ran 26 times. Now, I would still argue you'd want to run more times. Even Zach Moss got in the game for a carry for four yards. Uh, but they they ran. Running matters quite a, a bit. And we've been hearing people screaming about this for, for well, a couple of years now. Finally, they're doing it. That enough is it to give Parks Frazier a lot of love. Hey, Tony, you and I have been on the same page with one clear thing for the past couple of months, and that is this team is just going to be as good as its offensive line performs. And yesterday might have been the best offensive line performance, really, in both run blocking and pass protection we have seen this year. And that is the key to it all. I mean, it really is. There are a lot of really good layered stories here, layered stories of success because of that win yesterday. But it's the offensive line. And this team, offensively, is only going to be as good as – that group plays and it played up to a lot of the expectations yesterday and you look at it in turn they end up getting a win so that's that's where it all is right there that's where it's all been this season that's where it's going to continue to be it starts right there with that old line they played better yesterday ran the football and then running off uh, that of running the football got to throw it down the field a little bit got some playmakers made some big plays that's what you want to see uh, we'll we'll just stick with offense this time around. Any changes we should expect to see uh, this week? Anybody leaving and they looking for anybody to come in? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Well, I mean, it is just Monday morning, Tony. I mean, who knows? It's the Colts and it's Monday morning. 
No, I, I don't think so. Here's what I gather. I gather they're going to let this thing settle down a little bit. You know, certainly they're not going to practice. They're not going to go in today. No practice, no practice tomorrow per usual. They'll get back with it in preparation for the unbeaten Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, they'll start practicing on, on Wednesday for that Sunday matchup. And then, you know, we've been talking about this a little bit, right, with that Raider team. It's not any good. It really looked in disarray. And actually it was more in disarray than the Colts did coming off that chaotic week that they had here. But Philly's legit. Nick Sirianni, the former offensive coordinator, has that team unbeaten right now. The best team in the NFL. If you watched Buffalo the past couple of weeks, there's no doubt that right. the Eagles are the best team right now in the NFL. There's going to be a significant gauge as to where this team is and how much you gather from the hiring of Jeff Saturday. That is going to be a true gauge. But yesterday, yesterday was fun to watch, an exciting game, and some good fortune come to the Colts after what was a chaotic week for sure. Yeah, 25-20 is some good fortune. Um, Matt Ryan playing pretty well, some good fortune. A running game back, I mean, offensive linebacker, some good fortune. I don't know if that continues against the Eagles, who they play on Sunday. Uh, yes, the best team in the NFL. I agree with JMV there. My thanks to JMV, 93.5, 107.5, the fan, 3 to 6 p.m. But I'm not as angry at people like Joe Thomas. Joe Thomas of the Browns said it was, it was this is the most ridiculous thing he's ever seen. What an insult. Uh, to to coaches out there. Um, I actually think it's weird. I think the pick of Jeff Saturday is very, very strange. And I don't take from one win, well, everything's fine. I think some of the commentary was fascinating. You know, when you when you hear from, from Paris Campbell, uh, who who's like um, Jeff brought a level of accountability this week that was real, man. That was a hundred percent real. I think every player, every coach, we appreciated that. That's a damning assessment to Frank Reich. Ryan Kelly, the center quote: "There was excitement out there, and that carried into the game." Jeff is a guy that believes in his players and believes in his coaches. Damning of Frank Reich. It's an attitudinal thing. And as for this guy, you know, Parks Frazier calling the plays. First of all, someone turned down the opportunity. I find that fascinating. Parks Frazier, I mean, people are like, you know what? That was that was a well-serviced game that was playing to the strengths. You heard Jambi talking about keep it simple. Yeah, that absolutely matters. Si- keep it simple, stupid. Ain't the worst thing in the world. Not at all. Uh, I I hope for the Colts' sake that it extends. But I'm not going to take from one game that Jeff Saturday is uh, a national hero. It's one game. Everyone, please. As I said, woe up. More to get to. Find everything. TonyCats.locals.com. I'm Tony Katz. So the election comes, and for the political right, it's absolutely not the result that was wanted nor expected. So the conversation has to be asked, or I should say the question has to be asked, exactly how in the world did everybody get this wrong? And I mean everybody, but not just on the political right, everybody on the political left as well. They're cheering the fact that it wasn't as bad as they thought. As a matter of fact, in some places, like the U.S. Senate, they won. 
I mean, depending on what happens with Herschel Walker there in that uh, runoff election in Georgia against Senator Raphael Warnock. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It is good to be with you. Ed Morrissey joins us right now of HotAir.com, where he is the capo de tutti capo. He is also the host of the Amiable Skeptics podcast with Adam Baldwin. You can get more about that at HotAir.com, wherever your fine podcasts are indeed sold. These numbers, this data, I'm a data-driven guy. Don't tell me about what you feel. Tell me about what you know is what matters. And what people knew is, in many ways, for Pennsylvania at least, what it is they feel. In other places, like Nevada and Arizona, which made mockeries of the election, massive changes have to come. Lawsuits should happen, in my view, Ed. Um, But it also teaches that strategy beats rhetoric. And if you're not going to play in this mail-in voting insanity, which I agree is wrong and has to be stopped, you're not going to be able to compete There was a lot to learn from this election, a lot of mistakes made, not necessarily in the polling, but reading the polling. What is your take on what took place? Well, uh, first off, thanks for having me back, Tony. Look, I mean, I was surprised um, and I was very disappointed in how well we performed. And I think what it really came down to was that some of the early voting, I think there was more robust early voting than we anticipated. And Republicans just don't compete very well in early voting. And I think that, but even on election day, I think that we underestimated the impact that abortion was having on on some of these um, races. And I think we also underestimated the impact that uh, the focus on the 2020 election rather than what to do going forward had on uh, the minds of voters who aren't necessarily strong Republicans. And of course, you've got to be able to win the middle in order to win elections. There's no doubt you have to be able to win the middle in order to win elections. So let's break down what some of these conversation pieces have been. Uh, we'll get into an agree or disagree on it. First, of course, is they want to tell you, well, the problem is candidate quality. Republicans just didn't have good quality candidates while they were running Fetterman. So uh, the question is, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, it is a laughable proposition. The idea that Katie Hobbs is a quality candidate is a laughable proposition in Arizona. What she wasn't was somebody on the Donald Trump 2020 election denier, as they call it, truther conversation that doesn't make Katie Hobbs quality. Yet this is the conversation piece that they want to put out there. Agree or disagree. The issue was candidate quality. No, I think candidate quality mattered. And I think it mattered not just in terms of the head-to-head races, but also what was up further on the ballot. For instance, you mentioned Fetterman versus Oz. Well, look, I mean, part of the problem is that you had Doug Mastriano at the top of that ticket, who was a big turnoff, who was very much into the 2020 election. You know, Oz wasn't talking about the 2020 election, but Mastriano was. And I think that that had an effect on that race. I also think that Oz, you know, basically Oz was a carpetbagger. Right? I mean, he, he kind of carpetbagged into that. He wasn't really the best candidate, especially earlier in the race. And I think that that hurt. Uh, I think that quality did hurt. Fetterman for, you know, and I agree with you about Fetterman, but Fetterman, they've known Fetterman for a while in Pennsylvania. He's a Pennsylvanian. And, and again, I think Pennsylvania is a, you know, blue tilting state that you have to have a real reason to to go Republican in. And with Mastriano at the top of the ticket and with Oz sort of carpet bagging in, Republicans didn't give him that reason.
So I, I think it matters there. I think it matters in Arizona. Mostly uh, the candidate quality issue there is, again, talking, you know, focusing on the 2020 election rather than focusing on what's ahead. Voters don't vote on the past. They vote on the future. And I think that that's a lesson that a lot of these um, uh, candidates forgot in this election cycle. I think they felt they got a lot of um, attention for focusing on the 2020 election rather than focusing on the issues as they are right now. And this was an issue, this was a, uh, you know, it's an issue, rich fields, a target rich environment here. You had inflation, you had, um, you know, you had crime, you had a border crisis, especially in Arizona, you had a border crisis. Um, those were the issues that you really needed to talk about both in the primaries and in the general election. And I don't think either one of those candidates there um, made enough of an impression on those issues to overcome their, their, you know, activism on the 2020 election front. You know, it's, it's funny when we talk about Pennsylvania and you talk about Oz and, and not being a quality candidate, talking to Ed Morrissey of hotair.com, hotair.com. Also, the Amiable Skeptics podcast featuring Adam Baldwin, which you can find over there at hotair.com, wherever your fine podcasts are sold. Fetterman also outperformed Biden in 2020 in those western counties in Pennsylvania, which is steel workers, which is coal miners, uh, to this idea of connection, to this idea of cares about people like me. I find voting on a motion to be a very awkward thing to do, but a lot of people do it. It goes back to 2012 when uh, people said, oh, I voted for Obama because he cares about people like me. And Romney doesn't care about people like me. And I said, that's a a serious, serious issue. You got to recognize that there is something there that is real. It can't be changed. This brings us to the idea of mail-in balloting, ballot harvesting, ballot curing, what we saw in Nevada. It's all lawful in in Nevada. I oppose mail-in balloting. It either causes fraud or creates the opportunity for fraud or creates the, the perception of fraud. So, by the way, just taking six days to count ballots. Uh, there are some people like, well, we just have to get rid of this. I don't argue getting rid of it. But if you're not going to get rid of it, don't you also have to at least compete in that sandbox? Yes, I think that this is uh, part of an issue that Republicans kind of fall into, which is the world as they would like it to be versus the world as it is. And I think that I, I'm with you. I mean, if I had my druthers, Election Day would be Election Day. Everybody would turn out then and, and only absentee ballots for specific reasons would be allowed to be mailed in. And anything that didn't come in before Election Day simply would not be counted so that you could have one election day and then it's over with and everybody would get the counts and we'd all know who won the election within about 24 hours. Um, that's not the world as it is. And that's not even the electorate as it is. The electorate as it is prefers to have multiple days of voting opportunities, prefers to have multiple options and Republicans have been fighting against this. And I think especially after the pandemic, when you know, you've got this, uh, Nevada, they mail them out to all register, you know, mail out ballots to all registered voters, and you got to wait for several days afterwards for them all to come in. Those sorts of things should really be changed. I mean, it's you can see what the outcome is in Nevada. It's embarrassing uh, that it takes this long to settle these races. California is just as bad, uh, but it's it's this is the world as it is, and until we can get majorities in those states to get more rational voting processes in place, they're going to have to start learning how to use these, how to uh, how to uh, motivate voters to use these. I think Ron DeSantis has done a great job of that, for instance, in Florida. You know, they have a more rational system in Florida, but they still have some of these uh, mail-in balloting and early voting um, balloting. And look, 
Ron DeSantis ran the table. Republicans ran the table under Ron DeSantis in Florida. If they can do it in Florida, they can do it in the other states as well. And that is the, the point of that should not be underplayed that Florida has vote uh, by mail, has early voting. Uh, a fair amount of it happened in Florida and still Republicans carry Miami-Dade County. So of course it can be done. And that brings it back to this idea of candidate quality, which isn't actually about candidate quality. And this is where people are bullcrapping themselves from now until the end of time. This is whether or not you brought up Trump. And as you discussed it, it's an even bigger conversation. Are you looking backwards or are you looking forwards? And we are a nation that looks forwards. We say, ah, we don't like it. Oh, what's coming up tomorrow? Right. I mean, almost you can almost say it's uh, it's a uh, uh, attention span issue, right? In the United States. But honestly, it's a rational way to look at, to look at things. What's in the past is in the past. What voters are concerned about is what's going to happen in the next two years. What's going to happen in the next four years? That's actually the right way to look at elections. And yet we had all through this cycle, we had uh, basically what I would call a grievance election in a lot of these places. And we had grievance candidates rise to the fore largely because Donald Trump supported them, uh, complaining about what happened two years ago, not necessarily offering a whole lot of uh, constructive ways to move forward from what happened two years ago, but basically asking to relitigate what happened two years ago. And the vast majority of Americans simply aren't, uh, aren't up for that. And I think that that is a lesson for Republicans in 2024, is that if we're going to go back into another election cycle uh, demanding to relitigate what happened in 2020, we're going to lose in another national election. Which brings us to the polls. Ed, talking to Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, this was G. Elliott Morris. I'm not familiar with the man, data journalist, U.S. correspondent for The Economist. This was very very interesting. I, he wrote uh, the book Strength in Numbers, How Polls Work and Why We Need Them. And a lot of pollsters feel very, very good about what happened in this election because they feel they've gotten a level of their mojo back. They feel they got the polling accurate because they called the races tight. However, it's it's hard for some of us to uh, to accept because we believed, I will talk about myself, that the political right was being underpolled. I still believe that happens. But he points out that the average absolute error of polling averages in competitive states looks likely to come in around 2.5%, about half the expected error since 1998, and the polls look to have underestimated Democrats marginally by about 0.5 to 1 point. That is, in a lot of cases, the difference. Where I saw the shy right voter, the truth is, I was kind of right. There are shy voters. They're happening all across the board. But the polls that were out there, which there's a question of how many polls were out there versus the amount of polls that were out there just four years ago, the polls were not estimating or engaging properly where the shift was and they were overcorrecting to thinking there would be more political right turnout. Is that the case that they overestimated or is it so, uh, it, it, did they estimate uh, properly and people just got ahead of themselves with the wrong polling outfits versus the versus the right polls themselves? Uh, first off, I think there was so much churn uh, at the um, at the end of the polling cycle there that it's hard to say, oh, well, this was accurate, this wasn't accurate, because, I mean, a lot of these pollsters sort of turned on a dime the last few, in the last couple of weeks. 
of the election. I think some of them turned too much. Uh, I think you could, I think it's better to look at the entire series and to see where things landed when. Um, I do think though that Trafalgar is um, and Robert Cahaley are have some questions about their uh, methodology. Uh, yep. race. They've been accurate the last couple of cycles, but they were off this year. Look, I mean, I think that's um, I think that's what happens in polling. You get a little too in love with your methodology, and you get a little too too in love with your models. And you think that it's like going into war with the, uh, you know, with, with the last, you know, the strategy from the previous war. It's, uh, it, it gets out of date fast. Uh, I don't know where we're at with polling. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of people say, well, you know, like, like you just said, well, you know, the, the, the mean of this came up pretty close to, you know, within the margin of error of, of the results and that sort of thing. I think what we're seeing in polling is really um a reflection of the fact that we shouldn't take it as seriously as we do and we shouldn't set our expectations quite as closely to it as we do uh i think though that in this cycle the um the shy voter issue was an issue but i think that what we're going to find out is that we didn't get the independence right right i mean i think the the big the big uh, the, the big takeaway from this is that Independents turned out for, for Democrats, and we didn't catch that in, in the polling. Uh, we were looking at this in terms of what we thought the model was going to be based on the economic environment, which was a legit way to look at this. But in the end, Republicans turned off uh, independents and they went with the Democrats. Which is crazy because they still don't like the economy. They still don't trust Biden. They still don't think we're going on, down the right track. It is incredible they saw all this the data bears that out by the way and they still said nah that's remarkable how much uh, that i think is is a conversation is that a conversation of fatigue right some people want to argue that everything's nuts and they just didn't want more nuts which is one of my theories people want normalcy and the normalcy they chose was not to change anything in the midterms they'll maybe wait for the presidential please please can i please stop talking about this stuff we think that's true i think I think that's it. I think that there was. I think that the independents here had no. They didn't have any investment in relitigating 2020. Again, I think it's an issue of talking about things that don't matter. And I think, in terms of abortion, I think that that might have been the deciding factor among the independents because Republicans really weren't fighting back against Democrats because they were hoping that abortion just simply wasn't going to motivate people. And it turned out, and you could see this on election day exit polls even. This isn't just a question of the early voting. On election day, they had exit polls which showed people who showed up to election day put abortion as the number two issue. It was only five points behind um, the economy. And I remember when I saw that and I wrote about it um, at at Hot Air as part of the live coverage, that that worried me because it, it told me that the turnout for this thing was going to be less Republican than I thought it was going to be. And in turn, it, it, it looks like that's what happened. And so, again, you have to talk about issues that voters care about in these elections. Democrats didn't talk about inflation. They didn't talk about the economy. Republicans, on the other hand, weren't talking about abortion, weren't making the case that Democrats were the extremists on abortion, a case that is fairly easy to make, but they were scared of it and was and were trying to ignore it and hope that it didn't matter. In the end, I think it did, and I think that they blew it in that in that sense on that one particular issue by not hammering home the fact that Democrats want to abort uh, babies right up to the moment of birth, right. and they're the extremists. Had they pressed that issue, 
maybe that would have gone a little different. Really quick, I only have 15 seconds. Kevin McCarthy, leader or not? No, quick, I think yes or no, is. yes or no. Uh, yes, only just because he's in position to do it. I, I have no real dog in that fight. All right, we're going to save the other two for another time because I'm up against it. <laughs> His name is Ed Morrissey. <laughs> you got to find him at hotair.com, the amiable skeptics podcast at Hot Air and wherever you get your podcasts. I appreciate you, man. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. The situation at the University of Virginia is absolutely horrific. That shooting that has taken place. Uh, again, I haven't brought much of that story today because... This all started in the early morning hours. 12.53 a.m. is when we saw the first tweets from the University of Virginia about a shooting that took place on the campus. A former student, a former football player may be involved. That's the suspect. But I'm going to give this a day or two. Before we have the data, before I start sharing it with you, please don't think I'm avoiding a story. I just want to make sure I have the data before sharing the story. That's that's the responsible thing to do. TonyCats.locals.com. TonyCats.locals.com. I'm Tony Katz. Tomorrow, everyone. Take care.